Hi, this is Cycling Talk Podcast with me, Georgia Mahoney. To our first-time listeners, welcome. And to our regular listeners, welcome back. If you enjoyed this episode or any of my other episodes, then please share with your friends. And check out my social media like Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. On today's episode, I am joined by St. Piran rider, Chris Apey. This episode's long, but it's a good one, and I really enjoyed recording it. Thank you so much to Chris for being an amazing guest and opening up and being so honest about his cycling career. Hope you guys enjoy. Hi Chris, thank you for joining me today. Hi Georgia, thank you very much for inviting me. Can you tell me one of your early memories of being on a bike? I can actually. So one of the first memories I have of riding my bike is not a great one. When I was about seven, I was quite late learning to ride a bike. We um, we grew up on a farm, so we had quite a lot of outdoor space. And one afternoon or one evening, I was riding my bike, running around in the garden and trying to turn this corner, trying to get a little bit sharper or faster. I'm not sure what I was trying to do, but eventually I fell off my bike and I broke my leg. Ooh. But I have this terrible fear of hospitals. So I was lying on the floor crying. My dad had this big old lawnmower and he couldn't hear me crying and screaming. So he just carried on going about mowing the lawn whilst I'm lying there as a seven-year-old screaming in pain. And um, eventually the dog sort of triggered my my mum from indoors to come out and see what was going on. And my little brother, my little sister came along and helped. And um, they decided, oh, you're going to have to either go to hospital or walk into the house. I was like, well, I don't want to go to hospital. I hate hospitals. I'm scared of hospitals. So I then stubbornly tried to walk into the house, but of course, on a, it was my um, the, the two bones in my shin, so oh. tibia fibula that were they both a green stick fracture, I think they call it. So it's not you know a full clean break, but it was enough that it seriously hurt at that point. So I tried to hobble into the house, sort of tried it, sort of made it, and then went to bed and loads of pain throughout the night. And the next thing in the morning, well, you're going to have to go to hospital. And then there's this toss up between, oh, do I concede and just admit that, okay, I'm going to hospital or do I just go to school? And definitely the hospital won out of going to school or hospital. So yeah, that's my first memory. Not the best. Yeah. (laughs) Did you have a little bit of fear of going on your bike after that? I was absolutely petrified of going on a bike or anywhere near a bike for a very long time. Um, Probably two years, I would say. And then my next memory of riding a bike is riding a 65 mile bike ride for charity with my dad so we went to the bike shop one day to get a puncture repair patch like everyone does just a really normal thing for a non-cycling family and there was a leaflet on the table and it said um it was called the rosie ride and they still do it now actually and it's just out of the town where we live in cornwall truro and it's 60 60 miles i think is the ride plus the two miles there and back and mum we thought jokingly said to dad oh you could do that with chris i was only nine at the time and we did it it took six hours and 25 minutes and then that was it I was kind of hooked on cycling so two far apart memories one bad one good (laughs) so did you do a lot of other riding with your family when you were younger so no not really not up until then and then when we after that charity ride the Rosie ride which is now called the Bob Mansbridge Memorial Ride and that's run by Truro Cycling Club which is quite special because it's I was the youngest person to do it and it was a very new club at the time. Well, I didn't realise that because when you're nine years old, everything is old, isn't it? You don't realise that some things can be new, even though the people can be a lot older. So I, we didn't ride a lot. We did that ride. And then we slowly, after that, started to do more. So I, I did more with dad. So we grew up on a dairy farm. So he, he'd milk the cows at like four in the morning. 
and then we could go out on our bikes at eight thirty and ride with the local cycling club. And that was quite a nice. They're nice memories. They're my definitely my fondest cycling memories. Yeah, maybe I can go and have a go at that ride sometime because I actually live in Devon, so I'm not that very far away from where you grew up. You should do. Honestly, you really should do. And it's always the first or the second weekend of June. So inevitably, the weather's quite good and it's a, it's a nice route. It's a, they always plan really quiet road, roads and I honestly recommend it. It's really enjoyable. I actually did it in 2018 for the second time ever. So quite a long break, 21 years between, and it was really enjoyable. Did you ride a bit quicker that time? <laughs> a little bit, but I, well, so they're random events. So you, you actually are given a maximum permitted average speed, which is 28 kilometers an hour. Mm. And you have to go and um, use all these control posts as well. So you have to answer certain questions on a, on a control card and you have to have your card stamped at certain checkpoints. It's like a, a day out adventure and then you get loads of cake and coffee, tea, fruit juice, all those sorts of things. It's, it's a really enjoyable and social way to get into cycling. You know how gravel riding is becoming quite popular? Yeah. I think this kind of has that sort of spirit about it where it's, it's not about doing things as fast as possible always. It's sometimes just about enjoying it as well. Oh, it sounds really cool. If you ever want to look it up, Audax UK events. Oh, cool. What sort of sports did you like doing when you were growing up? So growing up in Cornwall, where rugby, football and surfing are really popular, it was quite difficult because I was really useless at all of them. And I still am. I'm not very good at running. I have terrible coordination when it comes to uh, ball sports. Although weirdly, I did enjoy basketball, even though I was terrible at it. But the answer is, once I discovered I could ride a bike, no one else in the local area did it. So I didn't have any proof that I wasn't good at it, which kind of helped me continue doing it because I could at least tell myself, oh, I'm good at this. You know, I could keep up with these adults, which I think helped fool me into enjoying it and believing I was good enough at it to continue doing it. So no, not very good at any other sports. Can't run, can't kick a ball, can't surf. Cycling was it, really. So you said about that local club. Did you join that club? Yes, we did. Um, so we joined it in 1997 and in 1998, I wanted a race. So I was only, I was only 11 in 98. I actually raced for the first time when I was 10. My birthday's in July. Um, but in order to race, I had to be a member of a British cycling affiliated club. And there was only one in our local area at the time. I think that's something that's changed quite a lot over the years is now every club or organization is affiliated with British cycling. So I joined a club called the Chuffs Racing Club, which is... Um, the chuff is a Cornish bird. It's quite a rare bird. You don't really ever see them. Um, they were almost extinct, which I think is where the name of the team came from. The idea of chuffs racing team, I think they called themselves. The idea of you know choosing this thing that's clearly very Cornish, and because Cornish people tend to be quite proud of where they're from, like Welsh people or Scottish people, or Irish people. It's a, it's a Celtic thing, I think. Um, yeah, so I raced. I rode with Tro Cycling Club for a year, and then in '98 joined Chuffs Racing Team, and I think I rode with them for two years and then membership was always a big struggle so I think they had something like six to eight members and I was one of them as a, an 11 12 year old and eventually the club decided that it just wasn't sustainable they had to pay a license fee with British Cycling I think and the membership costs didn't really cover that anymore and then Corn was quite a weird network of clubs like lots of people join different clubs and they go from one to the next maybe it's normal in other places as well I don't really have that much experience of it 
so eventually that club closed and then I joined another local club which um, actually had some quite interesting riders throughout the years Wendy Hoovenagel who's an Olympic um, silver medalist she rode for them it was called Camel Valley uh, Cycling and Triathlon Club and the people that ran the club they were really just passionate sports people and they they did a lot of voluntary work for the community and had this really big thriving club and a really interesting kit so in the 90s Chris Borbman rode for a French team called GAN G-A-N and the club kit that I rode in in I think 90 uh 2000 2001 that was almost exactly a replica of the GAN kit which actually looking back is a terrible kit it's white with blotches of yellow and blue but it's very distinctive and that club also had a Time trialing was always big, a big part of that club. And they had a rider called Stuart Dangerfield, who was very fast and very well known at the time and set lots of national records. He also rode for the club. Oh, cool. So what was that first race? So the first race was in a uh, disused military base of sorts um, in a place called Portreath, which is on the coast. It's a very, very windy place. It's quite an exposed, it's got a big, a very large runway. So very open, very exposed windy because it's on the coast on quite high cliffs and the road surface is abysmal it's terrible and because I was 10 years old and cycling wasn't very popular in the southwest of the UK at that time I was the only person in my race the next eldest person was I think 14 and then the next eldest was 16 so there's just three of us going around this circuit at the time and the race was five laps which I think the circuit's about a mile and a half so seven and a half seven-ish mile race something like that and um I kept up for three laps and then that was it then. I, I couldn't keep up at all. And in fact, in the last two laps, they went on to lap me and I did it in a baggy shirt. I have a picture of it somewhere, actually. I did it in a baggy shirt with a helmet with a peak on it. I had clip-in pedals at the time and it was on a bike that I'd been given for Christmas three months before. And it was, I don't know why I enjoyed it. Honestly, looking back now, like if I went to a race now and I got lapped, after keeping up for two thirds of the race, I think I'd be really disappointed. But for some reason, I, I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And there was lots of encouragement from the older riders because there was, you know, there was a good scene for the, the 20 to 30 to 40 year olds, but just for the youth categories, it was never anything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know why I enjoyed it, but I did. And to this day, I still think it's one of the best circuits I've actually ever raced around because it, it's quite undulating. Although the road surface is terrible, that's also kind of the appeal now is you have to weave a good line across the back straight nice corners a little bit of undulations it was just yeah I look back on it with fond memories definitely do you remember the first bike that you were really excited about I do remember the first bike I was really excited about so we we used to have bikes every now and again for Christmas or when you outgrew a bike just a normal bike that kids have and you ride around but the first time I was ever excited about a bike was well it's, it's a bit of a split memory so there's two there's the one that I did the aforementioned ride the uh the 65 mile ride that was a hybrid road bike so it was probably not dissimilar to what gravel bikes are now but i suppose they do still do hybrids so like a city bike with slightly knobbly tires you could go anywhere on it really i was excited about that because i knew that it would be fast and it had big wheels 650b wheels which is now popular again um and yeah i remember being excited about that it was shiny it was a rally and in fact, it might even be in one of the barns still. It wasn't until recently. But the, the bike that I really remember being excited about was a purple Bataglin race bike. And that was the first bike that I raced on. And that one is still here. It's the only bike I have actually still got. Um, and that was just, it was really nice. White bar tape. It had Campagnolo gears. 
um, it just looked really classy and it's still really, really nice chrome forks. So well before carbon fiber and aluminium was a, a popular thing at that price point, it was, um, it's just a really, really nice looking bike. I quite happily ride one similar to it now, I think. So what sort of riding were you doing? So at that stage, um, cycling to me was, you know, not too many competitions because everything was a long way away from the Southwest, as you know, um, we'd go to places like Thruxton, which used to do racing. So a lot of cycle racing used to happen on old, um, uh, what well, motorsport circuits and old runways and things like that. Uh, we'd go to Cardiff because there was always a huge scene. Um, I know that you've spoken to Luke Rowe on your podcast and I used to see Luke and his older brother, Matt at the races a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a place called Lanwen where some of my first races were as well. That was in, just on the outskirts of Newport. Um, and the main D track in Cardiff had an amazing open day every year that we used to go to and do loads of um, track racing. Cowshot, that was a, a place that we used to go. But these events, were they were dotted throughout the year. So maybe there's, I don't know, 15 events at, at most throughout a year. And then the rest of my riding would be either waking up and going on my bike before school because I think growing up on a dairy farm, I've always enjoyed waking up. So dad would milk the cows, I'd go ride my bike for an hour. Um, and then looking forward to those weekend rides with the older riders. I'm really lucky that actually the neighbouring, it's very local, isn't it? The neighbouring farmer's son was also really into cycling, Richard Edmund. So I'd ride with Richard and his friend, Phil Walker, my friend, Phil Walker. And they're, you know, they're both a little bit older than I am, but they looked after me every Saturday and they'd always make sure I got home okay. Inevitably, Rich would have to give me more food and more clothes. And um, that was it. I'd look forward to riding on the weekends, maybe do a ride in the week before school, maybe on the rollers. I used to enjoy riding the rollers. We Actually, on that, we had a huge set of competition rollers that we used to, um, well, the club, when the club chuffs that I mentioned before stopped, they donated myself a set of these rollers and they had a big lap board and a red needle and a blue needle. So you could, you could use them as genuine competition rollers and you could race around a 500 meter track on that board. And they were so fast. So you could blow your tires up really, really hard. And then you could put the bike on it and use it in top gear and you could pedal like 130, 140, as, well, as fast as your legs could turn. And that would be like a, a 10 minute thing that I would do in the evenings, which was quite good fun. Yeah, fun. How can pain be fun? But it was, you know, you'd be breathing as hard as possible in the hallway, bouncing off the wall, trying to pedal this thing as fast as possible. And then looking forward to those Saturday and Sunday rides. That was, I think in a way, cycling is quite a social thing. It wasn't automatically competitive. I just really enjoyed riding my bike. When did you realise that you could make a career out of cycling? I think I always wanted to. And that was probably quite different to most kids. I really... I always really wanted to make a career out of riding my bike and racing. And I think that was, yeah, I think that probably took away a lot of the fun at times. When the, f- the first time I realized that I really could was quite late on. So I'd struggled for a long time, actually. Um, well, the first time I realized that I could was probably actually in 2011. So I had a new coach in 2010. I rode for a team called Pendragon that was sponsored by someone called Nick Bourne. Um, it's a sports it's a sports events company and he paid for someone called Steve Benton to coach me. And that completely transformed. I'd had like a period of poor form after a crash in 2009. And in August, August the 1st, 2010, I met Steve Benton and it completely transformed what I believed I could achieve myself. And, you know, whether it's still going to be possible to make a career out of cycling. And within, within six weeks, I felt like a completely different athlete having this coaching and following it really strictly and taking it very seriously. 
And then throughout 2011, obviously the progress slows down a little bit, but uh, throughout 2011, all the results kept on improving. And then in 2012, that was then the first year that I could legitimately say I earned my living riding my bike. So obviously, as we said, I live in Devon, so I have to do quite a bit of traveling to get to a race. And as you progressed, you did a lot of traveling. Who was supporting you to help you get to those races? So this is quite an interesting story, which ends up in me having a tattoo on my shoulder blade of an owl. (laughs) Um, We used to go to a place called Cowshot in, in the, you know, where the clocks change in spring and in autumn, they used to host these weekends at Cowshot and they were youth training sessions essentially. And you'd learn to ride around the track. It's a very short, steep track at Cowshot and it's always very, very cold, partly because of the time of year that they have these sessions. It's also an old uh, airplane hangar. And by going to these sessions, which was a Saturday and Sunday, we met someone called Walter Rickson. And Walter used to drive his his yellow Ford Transit van, which was probably an early 90s vehicle, listening to classical FM all the way from Somerset over to the Netherlands every summer. And there were these amazing events over there, like truly they were fantastic. So some of my absolute fondest memories of all time come from these events. One of them was called um, the youth, well, in English, the youth tour in Helmont near Eindhoven. And the other one was the youth tour of Achterveld, which is near quite close to Utrecht in the Netherlands. And one of them, so the, the tour near Eindhoven, Mierlo is the actual name of it, or Helmont, um, you would play games or do races in the morning and then alternate from day to day. So sometimes you'd be doing like adventure trails and things like this in the morning. And then in the afternoon, you can race your bike for an hour or 30 minutes or whatever it was on restricted Dutch gears. The Dutch gear restriction was always really, really low. So you had to pedal incredibly fast and you're because it's flat, you were only ever allowed one gear, which is quite different to the UK at the time. Um, so you, you'd be doing things like, uh, trying to achieve challenges on a Banksy castle or trying to find keys in a pool of eels. That's the one that sticks out in my mind. It's just really, really random things. And then on the last night, there was always a nice disco. So the 10, 12 British kids that went over, there was probably a similar amount of number of children from different nationalities around the Netherlands. So Belgium, France, Germany, and the Netherlands, all of these people getting to know each other. And yeah, that was just the best thing. So that was my first taste of travel. I don't know how on earth my parents ever let me go away at, in 1999 was the first time so i was only 12 in a yellow ford transit listening to classical fm but anyway walter he always taught the kids really good things like um like basic yoga and stretching routines and how to have a healthy diet and and genuinely i can say to this day there's not a day goes by where i don't use the information that walter taught to me at the time and one of my biggest regrets was always not standing up and saying something at his funeral when he passed away in 2005 nicole cook have you heard of her name very famous cyclist from Wales. She she got up and said something, but she was a little bit older than me, and probably a lot more confident than I was as a 17-year-old back then. And it was always one of my biggest regrets, never saying anything. And for some reason, Walter's always reminded me of a wise old owl. So I now have an owl tattooed on my shoulder to remind me to use the practices that Walter instilled in me when I was younger. And yeah, the, I don't know how he commanded the attention and respect of all those children listening to Classical FM, but he kept us all under control without ever losing his temper. It was really quite special. And he gave so many children the opportunity to go and do special things like that. It's really very cool. Oh, that sounds really nice. Yeah, it was very cool. So what was the first professional team that you rode for and how did that come about? 
so the first professional team that I really rode for um, was UK Youth, which was in 2012. I actually joined them in November. There'd been a like a semi-pro amateur team the year before. So it's quite an interesting level that I've always raced at. Um, there's quite a blur between are these riders full-time paid professionals? Are they still you know, doing day jobs at the same time? And for a lot of riders, it's, it's quite independent on their own you know, situation. Some riders didn't want to race full-time, so they'd always make sure they had other things to fall back on or invest in their other careers that they were trying to pursue at the same time. And I actually think that's quite an enjoyable level of racing. So you still get a taste of really big events at different times, but at other times, you know, it's not too strict and you can still enjoy, you know, doing other things in life as well. So UK Youth uh, was the first team that signed me as a professional rider. And we went over to Jersey to sign our contracts because the, the team principal and the sole, the sole backer of the team was someone called Nigel Mansell, who was a Formula One driver and world champion in the early 90s. And he was, he was doing the work with the team to try and promote the charity UK Youth, of which he was um, their, their ambassador, I suppose, or their president, I think is actually how, he, how he's called. So we raced for this charity. So the rules are really strict, which was quite an education, actually, at the time. We had really strict rules around what we could do, what we couldn't do, um, how we had to behave on the bike, off the bike, on social media, at the races and things like that. And um, Nigel kind of had the philosophy, you can get away with anything in racing as long as you apologize for it afterwards. So there was one race and I was really desperate to win because it was in Torquay and it was like my home event, as close as the Tour Series was ever going to come to Cornwall. And I remember going into the final corner and have you ever heard the phrase dive bomb? where you try and go up the inside of the rider in front of you without touching the brakes and the hope that you get around the corner. Anyway, it didn't work out. I ended up in the barriers. And um, Nigel's response was, you know, he's a little bit disappointed perhaps that I hadn't won the race and I'd managed to crash. But at the same time, he quite liked a bit of aggressive racing because of his, his background. Um, riding for that team came about because of another well-known person called Magnus Backstead who won Paris-Roubaix. He spoke to his daughter. Um, he, we, I'd raced against him that year and spoken to him at the races and alongside one of my teammates at the time, Bianto Barker, we both joined the team that autumn looking forward to starting racing properly the, the next spring. So it was uh, a, a series of really good results that helped attract their attention to myself um, along with, you know, good behavior at the races and just, yeah, also the personalities work quite well. I think we had a really nice team that year and both years that I rode for UK Youth. So you rode the Tour of Britain in 2012 with UK Youth as well? Yes, I did, yeah. Um, that It came into Devon that year as well, didn't it? Yeah, I actually um, watched that part when it was in Devon and I um, met Magnus Backstead and we've actually got a picture. Me and my family have got a picture and we only realised a few days ago that the picture contains you, which was really cool. <laughs> oh, wow. Very nice. That was a hard stage. That's probably the worst. In fact, I would almost say it's probably one of the worst days I've ever ridden a bike that stage across Devon. I don't know why I found it so hard, but going over Dartmoor that year, I really struggled. Yeah, it's a very hilly area that I live. Great for training though. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely. So I understand that in your late teens, you had some health issues. How did this affect your cycling? That's a very good question. So in 2006, when I was... Um, yet to turn 19, I went to France to race for a year. Oh, actually, the trouble started way before then. Uh, I had a growth spurt quite late when I was uh, 17. So at the start of the year, I only weighed about 62, 63 kilos. And then all of a sudden, and I grew by about 10 centimeters as well. And all of a sudden, by the end of the year, I was about 74 kilos. So 
my body didn't cope well with that, with the training load that I was trying to, to put it under as well. Just, I really enjoyed riding my bike. I wanted to get better at racing. So I'd ride my bike a lot. Didn't mean I was doing it correctly. Probably did too much of the wrong thing. It made myself very, very tired and felt very, very run down. So I had a period of time off when I was, well, I would have been 17 then. It was 2004. So I didn't race very much. Had a bit of a year off. In 2005, everything was fine and you know there was a healthy balance again. But then in 2006, when I went to race in France as a not quite 19-year-old, the team were obsessed with weight. Now, bearing in mind, I already knew I weighed around 74 kilos and they were obsessed with me trying to weigh 64 because we lived in a very hilly area. And the the guy that gave us free massage every single week would always be like questioning, oh, do you need to lose weight? Are, you know, so I took it the wrong way. I took it to the absolute extreme because I felt that that would be, you know, I was kind of looking up to these people to provide me with the correct advice that I needed to perform well. Whereas now I know that that was wrong. You know, I should have been, when you're young, you should really focus on building muscle and power. And then, you know, when you're, when you're the age, you know, 28, 30, that's when you can worry about your weight. You know, if you really want to squeeze out those last few percentages of performance. Um, So I basically stopped eating. It's not far off. You know, I'd eat in the morning, in the mornings I wouldn't eat. And then I'd come home from training and I'd have like a cracker and an apple and, in the evenings I'd have soup with a bread roll, but with no butter or anything like that. And it's just, I just depleted my body so much. At some point I picked up glandular fever. I don't know if it was in 2006 or in 2007, because this, this period of time spans quite a large, large part of my young career as a late teenager. Um, eventually in 2007, I was diagnosed with glandular fever. And that's when I took a long solid eight months away from cycling whilst living in, in the Netherlands. And, um, I recovered very quickly from it. In fact, I came back and won my first race, which was, that's, you know, very special thing to do. And I look back on that quite happily, actually. Mm, yeah. It's taught me a lot. So you mentioned that you were living in the Netherlands at the time. Can you tell me about the sort of traveling that you were doing in your late teens? Yep. Okay. So I ended up back in the Netherlands through contacts that I'd made previously. Well, it's via another Cornish family, actually. So Tom Southam who's now a director sportive for um, EF education or whatever they like to call themselves these days. He, he was six years older than me and he had already stayed in the Netherlands with the family that I went to stay with. So there was a nice, easy pathway to me going and staying with them. Um, the nice thing about being there was they had two kids a little bit younger and two kids a little bit older. All of them raced. That's what their life was, was racing bikes. Um, and I, I stayed there with them. And, you know, the results that year, that first year in 2007, were never quite as good as I was hoping they would be. And I could never quite understand why. Um, But I I spent a lot of time in and around the Utrecht area, which is not how you pronounce it in Dutch. (laughs) Um, And then met my wife for the second time, having previously met her in 2002. And we eventually moved in together in the south of the Netherlands, near Eindhoven, where those early races were that year. And then didn't do a lot of traveling. I think that's probably the one thing that I regret is I was so focused on this one goal of, Oh, I have to be a bike rider. I have to, I have to really aim for that. That I didn't, I made really good friends, but they were, they were from racing and still in contact with them now, but I didn't take the time to, you know, perhaps actually explore, you know, I had my car there. I could, I could go anywhere most days. I didn't take the time to explore and look around and just really learn as much as possible as if I was in the same situation now, I'd approach it very differently. I would definitely try and get out and about a lot more, see where it was that I found myself and 
and you know try and explore you know we were never far from germany for example and i never really went there very much and just little things like that that i wish looking back that i'd done and the similar story to when i was racing in france you know you race two or three days a week maybe but that still leaves four other days where i could have done other things and i feel like that's a bit of a missed opportunity and that is purely because I, I was so driven by this one goal of I really need to ride a bike for a living. What was the language barrier like being in the Netherlands? <laughs> so they have, I would say, about a genuine 60% of their telly is in is American. Okay. Um, all, all the films and things they watch, and they are incredibly good with English. But the best thing about their their tv programs and things being in american is you have the subtitles now i'd been to holland quite a few times over the years 99 2000 2001 2, 3, and 4 so the foundations for learning the language were already there you know children they, they almost instinctively teach each other things in different languages when they don't know each other and, and know the language and i'd already picked up on a few like key phrases you know how to pass things at the breakfast table or how to say thank you and just basic, very, very basic conversation in the years gone by. So when I was there in 2007 and I had some some proper help from other teammates and things, it was really, really easy just to learn the language fluently. And um, yeah, I still speak Dutch now. Oh, wow, so there was no, no language barrier. Then you returned to the UK. What was that like being back in your home country? That was quite weird. And it was a real period of... <laughs> probably the first crossroads where I was a bit like, oh dear, you know, I, so I, the reason we came back was I had a crash in 2009 and I'd had concussion. And for about six months, I would wake up every day and to varying degrees, I'd have this excruciating pain across here in my head and like a headache, but not quite a headache. And I feel really down about it. And I just completely lost all motivation because I genuinely always thought I'd live in the Netherlands. That's something that I'd always thought from a young age, probably from the first time I went there. Just, it's flat. It's, it's actually a really nice country. Um, don't let my wife hear me saying that <laughs> it was really difficult coming home because yeah it wasn't really home yet at the same time it was home and it wasn't you know I felt like I sort of had my tail between my legs and I felt a bit uncomfortable the whole time and I didn't get the results at the start of 2010 that I'd really expected to have um, in the British on the British scene and I found that quite hard to deal with because I thought I was coming back as quite a good rider. And then all of a sudden I found out that well, at this period in time, I really wasn't. And I struggled with that and I tried my best, but it really felt like I was going to stop riding my bike at the time, um, you know, racing and trying to pursue that goal. And if it hadn't been for the team that I'd been in, Pendragon, and if it hadn't been for Nick Bourne, the sponsor of that team, and Steve Benton, the coach that I met on August the 1st that year, I probably would have stopped. I think, you know, that it would have been quite difficult to justify carrying on to that level. I'm sure I would have carried on riding a bike for fun. I think I still enjoy cycling. So it was a weird experience coming back at that, at that point. Yeah, it must have been great to have those people to help you and support you. Yes, it really was. And I think that's the key thing throughout my life, actually, is it's, you know, if ever there have been low and difficult times, it's always there are people there. You just have to you have to realize that and you have to reach out and ask for their support sometimes. Can you tell me some of your racing highlights? <clears throat> oh yeah. So I have this long affinity with the Netherlands and having raced there a lot. So I mentioned that I met my wife in 2002 and that's because she was the 
the daughter of the family that I was staying with, she was their best friend. And we went on a camping holiday to the Ardennes, which is where we met. Then we came back to the Netherlands and we spent all summer like staying in touch and we go swimming in different places. We go for bike rides in different places and things like that. Um, because the part of the Netherlands, there's a place called the Utrechtse Hovoerug, which is like a hilly area just outside of Utrecht. And it's really nice riding bikes, just loads of really nice social activities. And in 2000 and um, I'm trying to think now what year it was. 2008 or nine, we did that race and it was the club's home race when it, where I was based in the Netherlands. It was their, their home event. I think it was even organized by them actually at the time. And I finished in the top 20 and I remember feeling really excited by that. Skip forward uh, what, seven years. In 2015, we went back to the Netherlands to do that same race. And it was now a race of a higher, higher standard, higher status. And I remember being really, really motivated. There was a team, it was now a two day event as well. There was a team time trial on the, um, the Saturday and then on the Sunday there's a 125 mile 200 kilometer road race just fairly standard in and around all these little roads where I have all these fantastic memories from being 15 years old and I was incredibly motivated and the finish straight is 700 meters in a dead straight line and you come up over a flyover and then you go down so you get a bit of a run up into the finish straight and it's it's incredibly fast and I remember coming down off the flyover with 700 meters to go thinking, I'm going to start sprinting. <laughs> and I got to like 50 meters to go and someone came past me. And I was so, so angry at myself for who no bike rider sprints at 700 meters to go. It was a genuine 40 second sprint. It was, it was really silly. Um, my teammates were a little bit disappointed, like but jokingly, because, you know, we still did well over the two days combined, but we didn't win the event, which is what we went there for. Anyway, 2016, the year after we went back there. And it was, I went back there feeling like a different person, feeling like, well, there's no way on earth that anyone's going to beat me today. And racing in the Netherlands is inherently dangerous. The, um, the roads are narrow. They have road furniture like you would not believe. Um, I, there's, there is road furniture ever, everywhere. And they have tram lines and it's incredibly dangerous. And the last 10 kilometers of that race is, is really incredibly nervous. Everyone knows it's going to be a sprint. Everyone's trying to make it not be a sprint or they're trying to have their riders in place. And at one point you go down a road, which is only wide enough for a car. Like it's a car width. You couldn't overtake a bike in a car without, you know, putting someone at risk. And we're going along this road under 10 kilometers to go. The race has already split up quite a few times and it's all come back together. And this is it now. Like it's guaranteed it's finishing in a sprint as long as you don't fall off. And I remember riding along on that road and someone bounced into me and, people get angry about races there's lots of lots of swearing lots of shouting going on and as they bounce back off me like i felt like this immovable object it's probably one of the few times i've ever felt you know like really quite invincible um he bounced off me and went down into the little drainage ditch they call them sloats in the netherlands and they're like full of green algae and really nasty so he would have looked like a swamp monster by the time he came out of there then we have to swing off into the into the town. You avoid all this road furniture. And I remember getting to the, the final straight, which again, same straight as before, 700 meters, dead straight line. And I remember sit, sitting about fifth wheel, just thinking, wait, and just wait, and just wait. And it's like every second feels like a minute at that at that moment in time because there's so much adrenaline in your body. You're, all of your senses are so engaged. And I remember getting to about 175 meters to go and thinking to myself, well, if you wait any longer you're not going to have enough time to sprint past everyone to win. And that was it. That was just this moment of realization. Started sprinting um, on the left-hand side against the barriers. And I remember crossing the line. And then there's a few things that happened at that point. 
take a deep breath and I look ahead and I'm just double checking there are no riders ahead of us. Absolutely. Okay. That's, that's certain. No one's ahead of us. This all happens in half a second or less. Look for the race director's car, which is a really good indicator that there are indeed no riders ahead of you. Make sure that you've actually crossed the finish line because celebrating early, it's never good. And then all of a sudden I just realized that finally the one race that I'd always really wanted to win. And I'd said to my wife, I said, if I win that, then all of this has always been worth it because it is just special for the sentimental value, not because of the level of the race, just purely sentimental value. Crossed the line, realized all of a sudden, just put one arm in the air and just screamed as loud as I could. And that's just, I think, a feeling that I'll never, I'll never forget how that felt. And it, it is helped by the fact that one of her family has this um, video from her and her sister and her brother-in-law, who was also, he was a pro rider. She comes from a cycling family as well. And just um, her, my, my mother-in-law, and they were all just there behind the barriers at the same time because we'd all been there for the whole week and they're just jumping up and down. And yeah, it just makes for this really incredible, very real feeling memory that I can relive because I can watch that video back. And that is, yeah, that's easily the highlight. Yeah, it, sound, it sounds like a really cool race. And I didn't realise that, that you'd won that and it must have been such a great moment for you. Yeah, one to remember. So you announced your retirement from competition in May 2018. Can you tell me about that decision? I can. So I have two young children who are they're not that young really anymore. At the time they were. Um, six and nine. The so whilst I was a bike rider, it was always really important to me that I felt like I was providing for my family. That was a huge motivator for me. I had to be proud of the team I was riding for. I had to be proud of you know how I was providing for my family, and I had to be enjoying it. And if those three things weren't happening, then it was time to stop. And unfortunately, all of those three things stopped for one reason. Um, the team that I rode for, they had lost sponsors, but rather than telling us you know, we're going to be in some financial difficulty next year. They decided to wait until December the 7th, uh, December the 18th, 2017 to inform us we can either stop the team now, at which point no one has a job, or you can all agree to take a 50% pay cut. Well, I don't know many people that can actually afford to take a 50% pay cut. So I tried to soldier on for a little while. And um, really, that made me very, very miserable. That's, that's the easiest way of phrasing that i didn't i didn't enjoy riding for the team i no longer felt proud of what i was doing and i certainly wasn't providing for my family anymore so when i had an opportunity to do something else i jumped at it with both hands so how did your life change when you stopped racing that's a really interesting one because everything changed massively and it's been really difficult if i'm honest um it's nearly three years now and i think when you live every single day of your life believing believing that your identity is this one thing you can't switch that off very quickly like that takes time and i had um less than four weeks to go from deciding i was stopping to the day that i actually finally stopped um i found it very very difficult uh there's not a lot that replaces the feeling of knowing what you're doing and being driven so that's something that i to me it's very important i need to know why why am i putting myself through this what am i aiming for what's the end goal as it were and with racing that was easy i wanted i always wanted to race to win and when that when that stops it's very vague and real life is very very different to the life that i'd always like believed was what is the only thing i knew so that's the best way of phrasing that 
it's very different to the life that I'd always known and the only way of life that I'd always known. So all of a sudden I had a job and it was a, it was a very real job despite what it looks like from the outside, but it wasn't clear cut like racing. Racing is really easy. If you win, you've succeeded. And in other races, maybe finishing the top 10 is a, is a success or a team result is a success, but there is no longer a way of quantifying, oh, this is a good result. You've done a good job here. Um, it was just very, there was, there was, there was none of that. And I, mm. I struggled to adapt to that. I struggled to understand, am I doing a good job? It wasn't helped perhaps by the environment that I was in, uh, unfortunately, it, but it just made it a very, a very confusing time. I think is probably the best way of, of summing that up. Um, and that lasted for a long time. I've one thing that is interesting though, I really discovered how much I enjoyed riding a bike and I didn't expect that because riding a bike no longer had the associated stress of performance and, and income and results. I just really enjoyed riding my bike again with Phil and Rich that I mentioned earlier on a Saturday when I was back in Cornwall and things like that. And that was, that was quite a special gift. That's not something I expected to have happen. And actually it's something that I've seen with other bike riders, you know, they retire and they take about a month off, but then actually you realize that they start putting pictures of themselves on social media again. Oh, I do still enjoy riding a bike. And that's, that's quite a special thing because all of a sudden you have your hobby back again, probably for some riders for the first time in, 10, 15 years or more. So a lot of people might know you from working as a presenter for Global Cycling Network. How did you become part of the GCN team? So one day I was driving to the local supermarket and I had a message on Twitter, a direct message on Twitter from Dan Lloyd. And I remember it was just a few words. All it said was, hi, Chris, what is your email address? And I jokingly, jokingly said to my wife, who's called Micah, I jokingly said to Micah, oh, maybe he's going to offer me a job. But realistically, it was the week before the tour of Yorkshire. So knowing that they do commentary, I was thinking he was probably asking about the teammates in my team that might perform well at the race. Anyway, lo and behold, open my email and there is a job offer or an offer to come up for um, an interview type thing and an induction day and to see if I would, I would like to take part and then to have a test, uh, a day of test filming if I was interested. So yeah, I was really excited about it. And you know, they are the largest cycling media company that I am aware of. If there's a bigger one, I'd be very surprised. <laughs> um, so it was really exciting. Um, that weekend, I went off to the tour of Yorkshire whilst writing a script for a test shoot for GCN, knowing that almost certainly I'm going to take this job if it's offered to me. And actually, um, you know, it's going to, I was convinced it would get me out of the, the financial situation, which I was soon to find myself in had I continued racing for that team. Hmm. I actually watched some of your videos on GCM recently when I've been doing my rollers. And I think it's it's really cool because I, I hadn't realised that GCN did that sort of thing before. They've got some really, really, really savage training sessions, actually. Some of them, we did lots filming in the Dolomites, which were really nice. So you can you can ride along indoors with us riding outdoors, I think. Yeah, their training videos are good. What sort of training would you recommend for people like me who are riding on the rollers a lot at the moment? I think the rollers really lend themselves to really fast sort of sessions, not much longer than 40 to 45 minutes maybe, because you, don't want, you definitely don't want to feel bored. I think 
lots of um, shorter intervals are good fun on the rollers because you've always got something to work towards and something to focus on. And it's good for your all round fitness. It's good for your muscle development in your legs and tendons and flexibility. And also riding the rollers is actually really good for your bike handling because it is about as similar to riding the road as you're going to get indoors. So yeah, short, sharp, nasty intervals and um, something that's fun and music I always think helps. What sort of training are you currently doing and how has that changed over your career? So there's been a big difference. I'll go through three very different phases for you. So before I met Steve Benton in, in 2020, I trained a lot. I would always ride my bike a lot, but that was about it. I'd do some sprints and then I would get to the races and I'd be tired because I've ridden a lot. And I also wouldn't really have a huge power output unless it was for short duration because I never did any long aerobic efforts or anything that was going to actually increase my aerobic fitness other than just long rides. And that didn't really work. Met Steve, then there were a lot of intervals. I, I would honestly say on most training rides that Steve set me, and this is I, I sort of sit here smiling because I can't believe I did it. I would generally get to a point on a training ride and I'd be like, I can't do this. I just don't, I just don't think I'm going to make it home. And because it was so hard, the worst ride from Steve was a seven hour ride. And it was written in capital letters and numerical digits, just so that there was no uh, confusion as to what he was actually setting me 30 time, 30, three zero times 60 seconds, max efforts in a seven hour bike ride. This is in 2016 when we were doing the classics and to the, we got lost, which didn't help. So the ride ended up being around eight hours from memory in that, in uh, Wiltshire, Hampshire, and Oxfordshire. I did it with a teammate, George Harper. Um, and the intervals were just horrible because George and I were quite evenly matched. So then you find yourselves racing each other to go harder and harder and harder. So we did the exact same session. And that was the idea. It's by design to help us get ready for an event, to replicate the event. And that was just have you ever worked with tss training stress scores no i haven't so they that's um been designed by a company called training peaks or someone that works for training peaks and it's a way of just analyzing your training and understanding how big that training ride has been and i remember getting back from that ride with a score of 550 it was slightly 553 i think from memory but it sounds like i'm a nerd if i remember it that exactly um and normally like an hour's bike ride you might get 60 so that kind of highlights just how hard and just it was disgusting and then nowadays my training is less stressful so steve there was high volume and lots of lots of long intervals actually on the whole because that's the part of my fitness that at that time that i really needed to develop in order to go to the races then i've had a couple of years of just riding what i actually did when i was riding by myself and no coaching no racing i would just ride really fast really hard so if I was going to ride for an hour, go out and ride really hard. And I really enjoyed that. It felt like a stress reliever and it felt like I was building fitness and performance. And I enjoyed that. That was good. Now I have a, a coach from a company called Spokesfit and he's called Stefan Mastala. He's quite a young guy from Austria. And it's very different to anything I've done before. And I actually really enjoy it because it's refreshing. So there's quite a lot of low intensity. So this week I will ride my bike for, I think, 22 hours around other things that I do. But there are lots of um, short, sharp intervals in there as well. And you never spend too long. Um, you never spend too long in any one training zone. So the, the time goes nice and quickly as well. And lots of sprints, which I, I'd probably do more sprints now than ever, actually. 
maybe it's because I'm getting older. Sprint athletes need to maintain their sprint as they get older, as the numbers start to slowly tail off. Um, yeah, so I'd say this is the least stressed training that I've ever experienced because it's not it's not crazy hours on a bike. It's not like I'm doing 30 hours, which is what I used to aim for when I coached myself. Equally, the intervals aren't so hard like when Steve was coaching me. So it's like a happy medium and I quite enjoy that. So you decided to make a return to racing in 2020 with St. Piran Elite Cycling Team. What made you want to race again? So I, I didn't enjoy life away from racing for lots of reasons. Um, GCN was an office-based job and that was in Bath. So my whole family had to relocate to the area and we lived about an hour away because Bath is an incredibly expensive area to live in. Uh, so it'd be a, an hour to an hour and a half commute each direction. So that's two to, to three hours, depending on the traffic each day. Um, and then just to sit in an office and write behind a computer screen a lot of the time, which, you know, you have to research videos and you have to write a script. But I felt like I could have probably gotten away with doing that at home, which now everyone's doing. But that led to me feeling very miserable. I didn't enjoy sitting in an office an hour and a half away from my family who I enjoy spending time with. I didn't enjoy the lack of activity, the, the physical fitness. I didn't enjoy that. I didn't have clear cut goals that I was aiming towards. So I decided that the best thing to do would be to revert back to the last thing that gave me, you know, those, those check boxes that I needed ticked. Um, and in my head, that was racing again. Obviously I was slightly looking at it through rose tinted glasses because I'd had this almost two years away. And it meant that you only really remember the good things after, after you've been away for a while. But I quickly realized that actually once I started training, uh, things were good and I, it was going to be enjoyable. And then 2020 happened to everyone. <laughs> yeah. So obviously 2020 affected racing massively because of COVID-19. How was the year for you? I had one of the best years of my life, if I'm honest. I finally got to spend the time with my family that I'd missed spending. I got to ride my bike. I got to train. I got to learn quite a few new skills behind a computer, which I actually really enjoyed. I like, I'm a bit of a nerd, I think at heart. And I quite enjoyed video editing and trying to learn how to use the cameras and, and also make my own, my own content then. Um, yeah, I enjoyed the year. I have to be really honest. It was, it's not a good year. I wouldn't look back on it. Like say it's one of the best years of my life, but it was, it was like a, a welcome break that I really needed. It wouldn't have been that way without the support of the team and, and other like partners that I have, but it was, it was a year that enabled me to really learn a lot about myself, but also learn a lot about what I wanted to do in the future. And, it, and for that, it's quite a special gift. I think I look at it as a gift of time, which on the whole, I don't think very often will be given in life. I don't think there'll often be a period like last year or hopefully not where you get this, you know, you can do your job, but at the same time, I was doing my job, but at the same time I wasn't. So I thought it was going to be racing a lot, but obviously that didn't happen. So I could still, I could purely do the job from home, which enabled me to just reassess lots of things and I'm very grateful for it in a way. Yeah. So I know that you share a lot of videos on YouTube and Instagram. Do you enjoy making them and do you edit them all yourself then? Yeah. So I, I learned how to edit last year. I mean, I probably actually still learning and I really enjoy that side of it. Um, I haven't filmed much recently because of the weather. Uh, filming in bad weather has a few issues. Turns out that, so I like to film with the camera just mounted on the bike with a microphone plugged in and then I'll talk to it. 
but when the weather's cold like it has been the last week batteries don't cope well with that and i never realized that before um i enjoy making my own content because i'm i can make whatever i want and if no one likes it that's fine um but it can, it's trial and error. There are no constraints at all. I can make whatever I want. If I wanted to make a video about climbing a tree, I probably wouldn't make it very interesting, but I could make it. And I quite like that. You know, I have this huge amount of freedom with what I do there. Um, I really enjoy passing on the tips and the bits of knowledge that I've learned over the years. That's something that I do really enjoy. Though when the weather's not good, I struggle for inspiration because I feel I wouldn't really want to watch a video of someone looking miserable in the cold and in the wet. So I don't really want to make a video of myself looking like that. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. And the, the response has been really positive. There are lots of, you know, at GCN, they have a lot of, uh, they have a lot of supportive comments, but equally because it's a large company and they have lots of views, there are quite a few people that leave not so nice comments. And when you work there and you read the comments, you're always, you always find yourself drawn to the negative ones. I think it's probably just human nature. But whereas with running my own channel, it seems to have been, I would say, 99.9% positive. You know, once a month or or less than that, you might have a, an air of negativity, but actually you quite quickly brush that off because you realize everyone has an opinion. Not everyone's going to like everything. But on the whole, there's a huge amount of support of people that, you know, they write with really nice comments. And then you, you sort of get to know your audience and you recognize when the same names appear and that's, that's quite flattering in a way. So I would say the YouTube experience, doing it, as a, as a personal, as my own thing, has been solely positive. Yeah, that's really great. I think it's nice with my podcast that everybody's being so positive. And it, it really does give you a bit of a buzz when somebody says something nice about something that you've done. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? And it makes the effort worthwhile then. Yeah. So St. Piran have recently announced that they will be a pro-continental team for the 2021 season. This is such a huge thing for not just the Southwest, but for British cycling as a whole. Are you excited about this? I am, yes. I, I think you're right about what you've just said. It's not just for the Southwest, it is for British cycling as a whole. St. Piran's real um, goal and aspiration is to be a, a self-sustaining team. And lots, lots, of, lots of teams over the years have had that as a goal. But because they've taken it really step by step, they are actually building towards that. They've They've built their own website, their their um their web shop, sorry, is what I should have said, um, where they sell stuff all over the world. They have a a unique following because of the Cornish identity that people sort of feel, you know, there are Cornish people all over the world. If you ever go to Australia, you'll see that there are lots of old mines in Australia where people from Cornwall emigrated to years and years ago. And the same in Brazil, other parts of America. It's a it's a worldwide identity that people feel that they can relate to. And because of that, and because of the very subtle branding that they have on their kit, it it does go everywhere. And I think because of things like that and the other produce that they have their name on, they genuinely could become the world's or this country's first or Europe's first truly self-sustaining team. As I said, lots of people have had that idea before. If they actually manage this, and they've been around for six years now, so there's a very good chance they will continue to do so in the future, it would be it would be really amazing. They have some really good ideas of how they would like to also not just keep it as, as a team at this level, but also, you know, go into the, the complete grassroots side of things so that children get proper education on how to ride a bike. You know, lots more people in the future will likely have to ride bikes like they do in other countries, hopefully anyway. So the, there is a whole education that's going to be needed there. So 
the young riders on the team, for example, could potentially earn part of their salary purely by educating younger riders. Because as a cyclist, you do have a bit of spare time. It's it's also just Cornwall doesn't have a huge amount of sports teams. So for the Southwest, then if we look at it locally, I think it's really important. If if a team like this had been around when I was younger, it would have given me something to aim for. I would have had a lot more direction. And then also there's a wealth of expertise that's attached to a team like this. You know, If I was just to choose the two oldest riders in the team, we together have raced for about 46 years maybe even more so that's quite a lot of experience of years racing you know it's thousands of bike races of experience that can be passed on to younger riders just between two people so as the team grows that number will grow as well yeah and a lot of people might not know but um saint pyrenac don't actually just have a men's team they also have a women's team and a development team i think it's great that the team are trying to work with so many riders and so many disciplines yeah, it is. It's really special. Um, the, the women's team and the development team have both really grown very quickly. And they both they have all of the resource that they could need from the men's side of things if they, if they want it. But equally, they are really efficient and effective at running them themselves. So everything's closely related and it's all there for everyone to to be a part of, which is I've never been involved in a team which has the same ambitions and the same speed of making those ambitions actually come true which i think is really good i think in the next well certainly in the next two or three years as as everything changes with the covid situation it could be potentially the biggest men's and women's team in the uk which i think would be amazing yeah that'd be really good so i understand that you're also a two-time world record holder can you tell me about that i can yeah um so both of them are on penny farthings both world records one of them is a guinness world record which is quite cool because then you get to be in the guinness book of records which i was this year and as my little sister told me that is every kid's childhood dream to appear in the guinness book of records and i've never really thought of it like that until she typed that out in the text and i was like oh yeah well now you say it because i always used to find myself glazing through there trying to find you know the weirdest records that people have chosen to set so penny farthings, they weren't popular for very long because they are incredibly dangerous, as both of us found out on the two days when we did the, the filming, or all three of us. Um, they are the, probably the scariest thing I've ever done. I th- Yeah, I think actually the scariest thing I've ever done on a bike is ride a penny farthing, especially in cycling shoes. So I had to have a small one because I couldn't reach the pedals. I'm not actually a short person, but my I couldn't reach the pedals on the, the size that everyone else was using. So I had a little, little tiny one, which means you have to pedal a little bit faster because of the gearing. The gear is the size of the wheel and the cranks go around with the wheel. Um, but once I got comfortable, you know, that I wasn't getting cramp in my feet and my calves and my hamstrings, which was the issue before, I thought, well, I still don't know if I can actually ride for an hour on this thing. So before the world record was set, we'd had quite a lot of practice time. We had all of the, I can't remember the days of the week. So we went there for two days. So on day one, we were given all the time in the world that we needed to practice. We could get up onto the boards if we could. So th- these these penny farthings, you sit about two meters up in the air, your head, maybe more actually. Yeah, it must be more. Um, your, your, your bum is probably about two meters up in the air. And then your heads, you know, depending on how flexible you are, even higher up. They are awful machines, really the worst. So you are, you're trying to get onto this penny farthing in cycling shoes, which don't have a huge amount of grip. I actually use mountain bike shoes and SPDs because I found those shoes more comfortable than the road shoes, which had a really rigid carbon sole and I could climb onto it. So you have to tiptoe up the back of them on a little ladder. 
tiptoe onto the back of it, then get used to riding around on the inside of the track where it's quite slippery and then slowly but surely try and make your way onto the banking. But you're already two and a bit meters up in the air. You don't want to then start going up the banking, which is then, have you ridden on the velodrome? It's not steep, oh, steep. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really scary, even on a normal bike, just drifting up because you you want to turn. I, when I first tried being on the velodrome, you want to turn around the corners when because you're on the bank, but you can't. And it's, it is a weird experience. It must have been really weird on a penny farthing. Yeah, it's it's exactly like that, but then slightly weirder because you're quite detached from the bottom of the wheel. And that, that was quite odd. There's more to this. So when you pedal on a penny farthing, imagine you're pushing your right foot down. You have to then counteract with your left arm because otherwise it's going to push the wheel out from underneath you. So you push your right foot, push your left arm. So it really burns your triceps. It's really, really tiring. So every time you push with the right, you have to push with the left arm. Every time you push with the left leg, you have to push back with the right arm. And that's just to go in a straight line. If you, if you can relax, then it's fine. But I couldn't relax. I was so stressed to the point that before the actual event itself, I hadn't managed to ride for more than six minutes in one solid go. And I genuinely didn't know if I could make it through the entire hour. It, was, um, it wasn't much fun. But then when, on the morning of the event, or on the morning of the measured hour, I um, did a really good warm up on the turbo trainer as if it was a race, you know, really good music on, warm up on the turbo trainer, and then get onto the penny farthing. And for the first six minutes, again, six minutes seems to be a bit of a, a thing in my head, but six minutes, I didn't want, I, I was like, oh, well, this is useless. So they blew a whistle every time the, the hypothetical record crossed the line. And I knew that I was about 100 meters behind that at one point, maybe, maybe further from memory. For six minutes, this went on that I was behind world record pace, and it was really frustrating. And I was, everything was hurting already after six minutes. And I was just thinking, how on a, how is it possible that I'm behind world record pace and I'm going as hard as I can? And then after a little while, I I persevered with that. I was like, no, you can do this. You like you haven't stopped after um, six minutes. You might as well carry on. And then I realised at that point, I also hadn't continued to fall further and further behind. So I continued to ride. And then I realized that actually I was starting to catch the whistle. So I was slowly edging my way back by a couple of meters each lap towards catching the whistle. And then when I caught the whistle and I was finally on the finish line at the same time as the whistle, I, that kind of changed something inside of my brain. I was like, okay, I can do this now. And that really spurred me on then. And so for the next 20 odd minutes, the, the 20 to 40 minutes was probably the worst because you've still got a long way to go. You're already hurting. And that's when the doubts are there. But once I got to that 40 minute period, I knew that I could start to go as hard as possible. So we had um, the people from AeroCoach were stood on the on the side of the, the track and Xavier was shouting my heart rate to me, which was really helpful. And I'd asked him to do that so that I knew roughly how hard I was trying. And I know that I can get a really high heart rate. So for most of it, the heart rate was over 180, I think, from memory. But And then in the last 15 minutes, then I knew that I could probably keep it above 190 without blowing. And he would just read it out every lap and I could try and it became a competition in my head. Then can I go harder? Can I go harder? How much harder can I push myself to the point that the, the whistle at some point was then three laps behind me. And that was, that was such a massive motivation because then I really wanted to gain a kilometer on the whistle. Cause I thought that would have been just nice if I could have lapped the whistle four times. I don't think about it quite made that from memory, but yeah, it was a really weird experience. Um, riding them outside then when we did the through and off around Hearn Hill. So that was a different record. That was a paced group record effectively that one rider gets the result from or one rider gets the, the measured distance from. And um, 
that was different again because then you're trying to ride like a through and off like a team time trial but on these bikes that are two meters up in the air and that was really awkward it was really hard to try and sit on the wheel also you don't actually have any brakes and you don't trust the wheel in front of you so it's really is really sketchy riding outside was much worse in a way than riding indoors at least indoors you were alone so it was only you that could knock yourself off whereas outdoors you always felt like there was a bit of a liability from someone else so had you actually done much riding in the velodrome like on a normal bike before you rode on the penny farthing yeah i had um i'd done quite a bit when i was younger so in 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 the late 90s and the early 2000s i used to do the national series or the national omnium series as it was known uh national championship no not national championships i don't think i ever did that uh the revolution series i've done that when that was um a thing in the past i'd love to race on the track now i didn't race on it quite as much as i wanted to purely newport didn't exist when i was younger so the closest was manchester which from cornwall was a very very long way and that just made it impossible really um i'd like to race more actually on the track in the future yeah there aren't any velodromes down here in the southwest when i went to do a session at the velodrome i went to the one in newport and even then it's still quite a way to get over to there in wales but it, it would be really nice if we could have a velodrome down here somewhere for us to be able to access more track riding it would yeah i think even in exeter or something you know mm. even somewhere in central devon would make a huge difference to everyone in the southwest even if you live in Somerset, driving to Wales is still quite a distance and getting to Exeter is, with the M5 is really quite easy. And it would bring on you know, a national facility like that in every corner of the country, as it were, would, would really help accelerate the level of progress that riders are able to make. It also just gives people a safe venue. I'd happily drive an hour to the village room. I'd probably drive an hour and a half quite regularly just to get to somewhere that, you know, you could train indoors when the weather's bad or you could do a really good race series or something like that. I think it'd be really enjoyable. So what are your hopes for 2021? <laughs> That's difficult. So at the start of 2020, when I was building towards racing, I, I, I trained really religiously and I got to the point where I could actually see myself winning bike races again. Um, and then I feel, if I'm really honest, I feel a little bit scarred by the whole COVID situation, as in, not scarred as in, oh, it's been a big drama, but scarred as in it's sort of preventing me from feeling too ambitious because I'm scared of the races not happening. I'm scared of mentally committing myself to trying to get into that sort of shape like I did 12 months ago. Obviously, racing will happen. They raced last year. It's the national level races that I, I really want to try and win again. So things like the Tour Series and the National Road Series in the UK. They, they were the races that I really enjoyed, actually, when I look back and I'd like to, I'd like to be back at the same level as I was previously and hopefully try and win them again so my hopes i suppose really my hopes are still the same i would like to be in the sort of the, the sort of shape and fitness to put myself in the correct position to try and win those races obviously there's lots that can happen which could prevent a win but that would be that would be my real hope would be to to be back in that sort of performance category of being able to win a race that would be nice so do you think you're gonna ride the tour of britain this year so that's quite a difficult one to answer. Um, there's a chance. <laughs> I don't know what the exact qualification criteria are for the Tour of Britain. I don't know if teams still have to qualify like they did previously in the past. 
Um, if they do, I actually don't see a problem of our team qualifying. I think we have a very strong team. Uh, me personally, yeah, that's um, that's a different level to the national races again. 12 months ago, I believed it was possible, but I'm now a 12 months further from racing and I have to remain realistic. Do I think I could get back into the shape where I could sort of get you know into the top three, the top 10 in the Tour of Britain? I don't know is the honest answer. Um, you know, I, we do have a strong team with some very strong riders and it would be quite a hard six, a group of, hard group of six to qualify to be within. So I would like to think it was possible. So I, w- I was just wondering if you were wanting to do the Tour of Britain this year because there's a stage in Cornwall. Yeah. So that, that was part of my original uh, motivation for coming back to racing was that would be amazing to be a part of. But it, that that's a project that's to bring the Tour of Britain to Cornwall wouldn't be happening without someone called Dave Potter, who has spent, it must be genuinely hundreds of hours of hard work trying to make it happen. So in 2016, he, he dared to dream that it would be possible for one man to bring the event to Cornwall. And he wrote to every parish, to every council, every councillor as well, and slowly but surely gained support for the event coming to Cornwall. It went to Cornwall Council and was able to be part of the pitch that actually helped them agree to bring the event to Cornwall. So it's all happening because of Dave, who I've become friends with. And part of me actually likes the idea of standing on the side of the road and watching the race with Dave, hopefully. Um, if that's possible or not, if I don't ride the event, I don't know. Um, yeah, so the original motivation part of it was indeed to ride the Tour of Britain in Cornwall because that would be phenomenal. I, I don't think I'd probably stand on the start line with tears in my eyes, to be honest. The idea that when I was 9, 10, 11 years old, that an event like that would be on my home roads would have been so out there that I wouldn't have dared dream about it. But actually, as I've as I've gotten older now and been away from the sport, the competitive side of the sport for a little bit longer, I also realised that I genuinely could appreciate it as a spectator and you know i'd feel i'd be happy either way it's um it's quite a weird feeling that i have about it i always thought i had to ride it and then in the last 12 months that has slowly changed because i I now realize that yeah it would be nice to ride it but equally it'd be nice to sort of soak up and absorb the atmosphere along with everyone else you know it'd be nice to ride it if i thought i was going to be able to win like i used to think that i could um september is a long time away from now luckily (laughs) so i have a long time to to pull my finger out or to um or, or to not pull my finger out that's that's kind of the way it is it's, it's a yeah. bizarre bizarre feeling i'm hoping to watch the stages in devon and cornwall because it's nice to see the big riders coming down and watching them there was actually a stage in 2018 in my local town and it was amazing to see even the people that weren't interested in cycling came out and everybody was so excited that these big cyclists were coming to race in our area yeah. it was really cool it is really special especially in devon and cornwall then hopefully where you have and wales actually where you have the flags and you know the the local crowds really show that we we mean something to ourselves like as in we're proud of who we are and where we are and we want to showcase our county and yeah racing in devon the the only problem with the Tour of Britain coming to Cornwall is it's on a weekend. And I think the best day of the week is a school day when schools take the kids out onto the side of the road. And that's amazing. So hopefully the route, it actually includes enough people in the Tour of Britain in Cornwall that lots it will go past lots of people's houses so people don't have to travel to see the event. Like I think that's always special when, when it goes past schools and, 
everyone's made the effort to come out. So hopefully that's that happens on a on a weekend day as well. Mm. So do you have a favorite race that you've done? Favorite race that I've ever done. Oh, the years ago there used to be a small race in Mallorca called um I don't even know what it's called. Is it a Challenge Mallorca or something like that? I don't know. There used to be a really nice race in April in Mallorca. Not a huge high level race, but it was just a really Mallorca's a lovely place. And the road, the race went along the coast roads and in the mountains and had sprint finishes and it kind of had everything that you could ever want from a race. That was a good race. Um, any race in the Netherlands, I always enjoy. Ronde van Drenthe in the north of the Netherlands, which my brother-in-law, so my sister's sister's husband, won. Um, that's a good race. Uh, Veenendaal, Veenendaal, or Arnhem Veenendaal. I just I love racing in in the Netherlands, probably because it just brings back lots of good memories. So yeah, there are a few. Where do you like to ride for fun? Uh, if I if I could choose anywhere on earth or anywhere being realistic. Anywhere on earth, really. I'd I'd love to go and spend a few weeks in Mallorca. Just it's it's familiar enough that I wouldn't feel lost, but equally it'd still feel like a bit of an adventure. I think the roads there are really good at certain times of the year. So like October when it's a bit quieter, the weather's really nice, the food is nice. I think Mallorca is my favourite place to ride a bike. Um, if I had to choose a place locally, I'd go to uh, the, the coast on the mountain bike, really. Some of the some of the coast paths on the mountain bike are absolutely amazing here. The ones that you can legally ride. <laughs> Incredible views and just really nice terrain. Do you like to ride on your own or with other people? I always prefer riding with other people. Yeah, I, I, I'd have to feel like I was having a really good day and I just needed to do a certain amount of training or something to really want to ride by myself. That's been the case for quite a while now. Um, I always, always enjoy the company of other people. That's, I think cycling to me is quite a social thing. So I see on your Instagram that you ride a lot on your mountain bike. Is that for training or just for fun? It's a bit of both. I try and pretend it's training, but I think on the whole, it's really for fun. I, I have a huge amount of enjoyment riding the mountain bike because I, I feel like I don't have to be too aware about traffic. I don't like the busy roads in Cornwall. Unfortunately, we have quite a few busy roads or the few roads we do have are quite busy. Um, so I really enjoy being off-road away from the traffic and just seeing things that I otherwise couldn't see. Also, so I mentioned that I rode for UK Youth. We were actually banned from riding off-road when we rode for that team. They, they really didn't want us to injure ourselves or we, there were lots of things we weren't allowed to do then. And, you know, it's quite common with certain contracts. So, yeah, I really enjoy riding the mountain bike because it's still novelty a novelty enough, but it's not too dissimilar to my main sport that it feels like I'm trying to do something completely different. So I would, I would almost always choose if I was just to jump on a bike to go for a ride to go on the mountain bike. So Sampiran actually have quite a few riders that compete in the mountain bike and the cyclocross. Would you ever compete in one of those disciplines? Yes. So, yeah, we do we have some really good off-road riders, actually. Um, I would really, really like to do the National Series on the mountain bikes this year. I was hoping to do the Transalps last year, which is in France. But obviously, with the travel situation and everything, that wasn't possible. So I'd like to hope to do that again. In 2019, I did an event called the Leadville 100, the race across the sky in Colorado. I would love one day to go back there and do that again. So yeah, mountain bike racing is definitely something that is slowly, I think it will probably become more important to me than, than the road racing in the future. 
and I would probably long term, you know, after after I retire again, I would probably choose to do something like five to to eight mountain bike events throughout a year, just something that's different. I like the community feel about mountain biking. So they often will camp in the same field as the race starts and finishes the, the next day, and it just feels like it's quite a healthy community. And I do like a lot about that sport. Yeah, I really enjoy the off-road racing and I do think the community is really nice and I especially love cross. Yeah, see cross is a whole other game again, isn't it? It's so, how people manage to find the grip they do on those tiny little tyres, it's um, it's impressive. It's I can't run, so that's my excuse for not doing cross. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should give it a go. I think... People think that it's a lot of running, but some courses don't really need to be able to run. I think you should do it. I think it would be good. I'll see you at one of the Southwest races soon, okay? <laughs> yeah, that's that could be a deal. I might have to currently do it on my cross-country bike, but one day, hopefully, if I speak really nicely to, to Lapierre, maybe I can do a cross race on one of their bikes. So who is your favourite current rider? Oh, that's easy. So... I saw this question before and I didn't realize it was going to be current, but Matthew van der Poel, just because he's good. If he doesn't win, he doesn't make up some lame excuse. He just says, Oh, you know, someone was stronger than me or I didn't do, I didn't do well today because I just didn't feel good. And, you know, he's very, and when he wins, sometimes he looks happy. Sometimes it's like a, just a matter of fact thing, but when he wins the really big races, you see just how much it means to him. And he's just phenomenal on a bike. Like there's no, I, there's no real comparison to him. I know Wout van Aert and him have a rivalry, but he is still very, very different because he he technically does three disciplines and is, you know, among the world's best in all three disciplines. And it's kind of feel that if he was to take up another discipline, he'd probably be in the in the top five in the world in that as well. He's just phenomenal and seems like a likable character. Yeah, I think he's really cool and he always seems so laid back. Yeah, I wish I was that laid back. <laughs> Me too. So who's your favourite rider of all time? Um, so when I grew up, Eric Zabel was probably the, the best sprinter at the time. So a German rider. His son races now, Rick Zabel. Um, yeah, I think Eric Zabel was everything that I wanted to be as a bike rider. And he, he looked good. He seemed professional. That was always something that was important to me if someone was professional in their job. And he was incredibly successful. Also, I'm a big Mark Cavendish fan as well. And yeah, he he's actually a nice person when you speak to him in real life. And he's phenomenally um, talented and the achievements that he's made, bearing in mind when he started winning races, no British riders really won by races on the road. So he's like changed a generation in one generation, he's changed how people perceive, perceive British cyclists. He's He's gone from being in this era where oh, it was good if they could get to the Tour de France. It was good if a British rider rode the Tour de France. That was deemed as good. Every now and again, there would be, you know, David Miller or Chris Borman. But on the whole, if a British rider made selection for the Tour de France, that was good. And then he's won 30-something stages at the Tour now. It's um, incredible. Yeah, I'm a big Mark Cavendish and Eric Zabel fan. Do you have any advice for young riders? I do. And it would be the advice I would give myself. And that would be to really enjoy it. Just to sometimes take a deep breath because it can be quite stressful when you, when you want to perform, you know, like cycling is quite a competitive sport. If you go down that route, 
And I wish sometimes when I was younger, I could have just gone, oh, this is actually quite nice. I'm enjoying this. And it wasn't until I rode for a team in the Netherlands. And the last thing the team manager would always say was, have fun, enjoy. And it wasn't until then that I really realized that, oh, you can actually have fun and enjoy it and still be successful and still be determined and motivated. So that would be my advice. Don't take it too seriously all the time and really try and enjoy it because I'm assuming most of us are only here once and we might as well enjoy the time that we have here. So you've got five minutes before you head down to the start of a race. What's on your playlist to get you motivated? (laughs) I have the weirdest choice of music, I think. Um, I like really Euro pop trance type music from the 90s and early 2000s, which you may have seen on Instagram when I make those Instagram reels. One of my favorite things is to choose music that I've not seen anyone else use or at least try to. So that's one of them. Um, something like uh, Gigi D'Agostino, Toujours L'Amour. It's got like these klaxon sounds in the background. I mean, I could play it but I'm, or hum it, but I'm not going to. It's, um, I don't know, it just, it just reminds me of Europe and bike racing. And that always sort of raises those sensations that you need just before an event. So that's one of them. Um, or Kanye West, All of the Lights. I always used to like listening to that, Kanye West. Like he used to make good music, believe it or not. Um, don't let him hear me say that. <laughs> yeah, uh, just music that has like enough words that I can sort of channel the words a little bit, but also enough music behind it. Thank you for joining me today, Chris. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed. If you have any feedback on this episode, I would love to hear it, as I love to know what my listeners think of the podcast. See you on the bike.